We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovex. Joining me today is Bob Elliott, co-founder, CEO, and CIO of Unlimited Funds and former head of research and member of the investment committee at Ray Dalio's research team at Bridgewater Associates. How are you today, Bob? Thanks for joining me. Good, good. Thanks for having me on. So you taught an intro to macro and markets course that you have pinned to the top of your Twitter profile, and it goes through many of the big themes to help people understand things like money, business cycles, the interplay between productivity, business cycles, and the long-term debt cycle, monetary policy, what drives bond yields, and what drives corporate profits. And it's something I think anybody with any interest in the space should check out if they're trying to understand more on these topics. So considering, let's say, the three big forces of productivity growth, the long-term debt cycle, and the business slash market cycle, how do you see our current economic situation? And maybe we can start there by laying out a little bit about how you see this current situation here. Yeah, I'm I, happy to do that in, in, in that framework. I think if we think about um, from a longer term, you know, the first thing you want to start with is, is basically, let's call it the longer term productivity cycle, which drives, you know, any anytime you're thinking about growth over, uh, you know, 20, 30 year time frame, that's productivity is the main thing that drives what's going on. And you know, we've we've basically um, I think the thing that you typically see is the productivity, particularly in advanced Western economies, is pretty stable over time. You know, there's some fluctuations here and there, but by and large, productivity is consistent. Uh, and that most of the uh, evolution of productivity that you see, or the the changes in productivity are more cyclically driven and driven by other factors rather than real true productivity dynamics. I do think there's a big, you know, that being said, there is a productivity cycle, particularly in the context of a global of a of a um, in particularly in the context of the development of an overall like a societal development, which is in the West. Let's just say the developed West. We've gone from you know, 75 years ago, being uh, innovative and hardworking to being less innovative and less hardworking today. And so you'd expect productivity to moderate. So the types of productivity gains that existed, you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s are unlikely to persist. So we're seeing productivity slow to sort of that, you know, one-ish percent kind of level. You know, take labor force growth at close to zero, in most Western developed uh, economies and productivity growth about one, you actually don't need that much economic growth to have some tightening in the overall market. And I think that context is actually somewhat important when we think about what's going on you know, today, which is you see places like Europe or the US put up GDP numbers of you know, zero, one, 2%. That is very different. You know, that's not that bad. This is in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. And very different from where we were, say, 20 years ago when a 1% growth rate or a 0% growth rate was actually quite uh, a contractionary dynamic. And so it creates some risks around using previous cycles as benchmarks to looking at today's cycle. So you take Uh, that. Sorry, Bob, if I could just interrupt you for one sec there. When we're thinking about these, you know, these labor force growth rates, is a lot of that just due to demographics? Yeah, that's just a demographic issue. Okay. Um, and, you know, on the margin, uh, advanced Western economies could possibly increase immigration to the extent that it could be beneficial to their labor force growth. But those things are pretty on the margin. They're, you know, the, ba- the big picture story for most of these economies is that they have aging populations. And the result of an aging population is you get, um, you get lower labor force growth and therefore overall lower uh, lower overall growth, lower nominal growth, and real growth on a structural basis. That actually ties nicely to the debt cycle, because typically the way that uh, economies that are in the later stages of uh, labor and productivity cycle is you typically start borrowing 
to make up for the fact that you can no longer produce as high a rate as you did before to maintain a continued standard of living. And that's really what we've done in, um, in the advanced Western economies over the course of the last, say, 30 or 40 years. It was obviously helped a great deal by the fact that you had a secular decline in interest rates uh, as inflation became more controlled relative to where it was back in the 60s and 70s. And that helped stimulate an incredible amount of debt growth. And that debt growth basically flowed into a fair amount of consumption, maintaining consumption growth that was stronger than underlying productivity plus labor force growth, and also flowed a lot into asset prices. And so um, if you look at things like housing prices, particularly if you think if you if you start to look at places like Canada and Australia, the US of course had its cycle a little bit earlier, um, or the UK, a lot of that credit and that borrowing flowed into those asset prices, supported those asset prices in order to continue to basically spend and buy as much you know houses mm-hmm. as uh, as people had grown accustomed to in terms of the improvement of their quality of living. The problem with that is that there are natural limits to debt growth in the sense of at some point, you start to borrow so much that it's implausible given your income prospects that you'll be able to pay it back. And particularly if you think about the cycle, the the long-term cycle, what you have is actually a declining structural ability to pay back the debts as you're increasing your debts. And we've really, you know, that really came to a head in the US context, I'd say back in the 2008 cycle, uh, and and it's shifted meaningfully from that point, if you look at something like places like Canada and Australia, that sort of reckoning hasn't yet happened and is likely, you know, is, is starting, probably starting to emerge. Although, you know, I would have told you that 10 years ago too, that it would probably emerge. So these debt cycles can, they can play out longer than you might expect. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the underlying dynamic, which is, you know, we're, we're either past our debt cycle peak uh, in the private sector or reaching those debt cycle limits. And then what we're seeing, particularly in the US, is that that borrowing dynamic is shifting from the private sector, which is you know mostly deleveraging or, or in that lever- deleveraging longer term cycle, it's shifting to the government, right? As the government starts to borrow increasing amounts and start to increase their deficits in order to offset the dynamics on the private sector. And so now we're seeing governments start to borrow meaningfully. You know, really, if you look over the last 15 or 20 years, government debt levels have risen considerably. And that too has its limits. Um, you know, governments can obviously borrow essentially in an unlimited capacity because they can print the money to be able to do it. But at some point, risks around uh, the magnitude of their borrowing and the stimulative effect of their borrowing start to get raised either in the price action or the sheer amount of money printing that has to get created. And in particular, what you often see is that fiscal stimulus, that fiscal stimulus coming to the market at a time when productive capacity is declining, which creates a squeeze on the uh, basically a lot of nominal income or a lot of nominal uh, income you know, with transfers relative to flagging productive capacity and you often will get squeezes on prices as a function of that. And that, in a lot of ways, is what's going on right now in the global economy, and particularly in the advanced Western economies, is that we have a circumstance where there's been a lot of government borrowing and fiscal transfers, particularly in the U.S., but to some extent in other places. And that's created the nominal income or the nominal savings or, or assets that people can use to start to spend. And that's happening in the context of a structural dynamic where you know labor force growth is starting to slow and and you know unexpected retirements sort of tip the labor market into deficit and create a very tight labor market which is resulting in um, in undesirable wage growth which is then resulting in inflation and so these I think it's very important to recognize you know, some people will say well we're an inflationary cycle because of COVID supply chain issues. And that is true. That was certainly a dynamic. And that's often what you see in these inflationary cycles is that there's often a supply shock, which accelerates or exacerbates the inflationary dynamic. But the big picture of what's happening 
is the productive capacity of the economy is going down a lot. And the desire to keep spending, particularly on a nominal basis and on a real basis, continues to remain, even though that productive capacity is going down. And that gap, which was filled with debt, you know, that gap basically has to be filled with debt and money printing. And that's basically what has happened over the course of the last 15 years. And that eventually got to a point where that imbalance was so big that you started to not just see um, you know, real spending, you started to see uh, pressure on prices. And that's really where we're at, which is this, which is a cyclical, uh, we're in a cyclical inflationary cycle, which has been exacerbated by the context of the secular coming to towards the end of the secular debt boom. And in the context of a structural uh, reduction in the productive capacity of the economy, all of those things are intersecting. And then we just had like had a crisis, you know, a, a health crisis and a supply chain shock that just sort of, you know, we just put that on top of all of this, which accelerated the whole dynamic much more significantly. And that's basically where we are today. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a heck of a lot of threads to, to pull on there and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll try and get to all of them. But, you know, when we think of that, of that wage growth slash inflation cycle, and if wages keep growing, does that really become one of those situations that keeps driving the inflation if we keep seeing wage growth. And, and yeah, is that think, something that the government is is doesn't in some ways doesn't want to see? Right. I think a lot a lot of times people hear wage growth and inflation, they hear they think wage price spiral. And that's not actually how it works. It's not the the a wage price spiral is typically occurs in the most often in the context of an emerging market cycle. And that's basically where you have a fall in the currency, which raises imported prices, which creates a real squeeze on domestic participants, which means that they demand higher wages, which means that they continue to overspend, which creates downward pressure on the currency, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's not really, that's, that's a, a, you know, that sort of dynamic happens when currencies are falling, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50%. Like what's going on in Turkey and other places, Argentina, places like that, that's a wage price spiral, right? That's not what we're having here in the, in the US or, or basically anywhere in the developed world context. What we're having here is a traditional inflationary business cycle, which to be clear, we have not had since you know the 60s and 70s. So people are not particularly familiar with how these cycles work, which is that wage growth, like typically what happens is you have a supply chain or supply shock, prices rise, wages actually trail the prices, and over time, wages start to catch up to the higher level of input prices or prices that rose unexpectedly because of the supply shock. But almost always what happens is that real wage growth is negative through most of that cycle. And instead, what's happening is the, the increase in nominal wages helps maintain the nominal spending at a higher level, mm-hmm. not create a wage price spiral, but maintain higher nominal spending. And that word maintain, I think, is really important because when you think about, you know, you or me or anyone, you know, you have a job, you have income, right? You take, you could possibly borrow. Like the fact that your income is rising in nominal in a nominal sense helps you spend more than you would otherwise. And so that's basically what's happening right now, which is um, you have this dynamic where, you know, wage growth, nominal wage growth, let's say we're talking about the US is growing at, you know, somewhere between, you know, five or six or 7%. We can compare that to the productive capacity of the economy, right? How much are you producing per hour, you know, per hour worked? That you're getting that incremental wage growth, that looks a lot lower than five or six percent, right? It looks more like one or two percent, and so that creates a structural inflation gap, right? Uh, that creates a structural inflation problem, which is I'm maintaining my nominal spending at a certain level, I'm producing at a certain level, and that's creating a price growth in these economies that is, you know, undesirable because there's a lot of second and third order consequences when you start to get inflation. You know, as inflation moves from two to three to four to five, you start to get some undesirable consequences, whether it's in the financial markets or in the volatility of inflation, et cetera. And so that's kind of the dynamic we're seeing is that this elevated wage growth is maintaining nominal spending growth that's too elevated relative to the productive capacity of these economies. 
And again, a much different case than if we had a 20 or 30% inflation rate. Very, very different. That That is a whole, you can kind of think about the, the one of the risks, right? One of the risks that you have when you run three or four or 5% inflation is that the, uh, the, the path to getting to 20% inflation is easier starting at five than it is at two. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that if you're at five, you're going to go to 20, right? Yep. That's not how it works. If anything, actually, in advanced Western developed economies with credible central banks, almost always inflation comes down eventually, right? It can take some time, but almost mm-hmm. always inflation comes down. And so more it's an issue of some distortive effects in the economy when you get to that four or five or six percent inflation dynamic, you get some distortive effects. Partially you get frankly like the menu cost problem becomes an issue. The fact that wages trail prices becomes an issue. You get negative real income growth, which is detrimental to people. And then also when it comes to asset markets and things like that, you start to get asset markets and financial assets in general trading on inflation expectations rather than um, like Grow, like for instance, stocks and bonds, when inflation is above three or four percent, start to trade more positively correlated. That has second and third order consequences in the financial markets that are undesirable. And so you get some of these undesirable outcomes, but it doesn't mean we're going straight to 20% inflation just because we're at five or six or even nine or 10, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to go back to some of the debt equation and, you know, reading from some of the as I said, the Twitter thread that is pinned to the top of your your profile, which I think is is excellent, and it's it says when debts can't rise faster than money and income forever, there are limits to debt growth. Think of debt growth that is faster than income growth as being like air in a scuba bubble. There's a limited amount of it that you can use to get an extra boost, but you can't live on it forever. In the case of debt. You can take it out before you put it in, i.e. you don't have any debt and you can take it out, but you are expected to turn return what you took out. And it continues a little later, when debt can no longer be raised relative to incomes and the time of paying back comes, the process works in reverse. It is that dynamic that creates long-term debt cycles. These long-term debt cycles have existed for as long as there has been credit. Even the Old Testament described the need to wipe out debt once every 50 years, which was called the year of the Jubilee. So how close do you think we are to the end of this debt cycle? And what would a debt Jubilee look like? Well, I think, uh, you know, we're not, we're probably not going to have a debt uh, Jubilee <laughs> um, in, in this context. Uh, we don't quite have the uh, centralized authority of the, uh, of the Old Testament days, <laughs> um, but uh but I do think it, what that what that highlights is the uh, is the overall dynamic, which is yeah we you know depending on exactly which economy you're talking about, there's been a great deal of leveraging up over the course of the last thirty or forty years, mm-hmm. and that was exacerbated in the last fifteen by an era of frankly money that was you know uh, incredibly you know. The, the greatest monetary stimulation in economies, you know, in the past hundreds of years, right? Mm-hmm. And so you had the circumstance where basically the debt cycle was, um, we sort of, let's say in the US context, reached the peak of our debt cycle from the private sector's perspective in 2008, right? With the, with the housing crisis, et cetera, that then created a circumstance where you know, borrowers could no longer take on a whole bunch of debt relative to their incomes. And what did that mean? Well, you know, the U.S. had 15 years of stagnant growth as a function of that, very low real growth. And part of the way in which that played out is that the central banks, there's no jubilee, right? Almost always there's no jubilee. But one of the tools that central banks can use in monetary systems that are fiat-based is to print money to basically offset the deflationary forces of debt so that you don't get a uh, debt contraction. So typically the way this would work in an environment where the central bank, let's say you were on a gold standard, just as a, as a, as a context, what would typically happen is that people would start to build up debts, right? And that would be expansionary. And then at some point, right? 
the the dynamic, the debt dynamic would start to to compress, and people would have to pay back those debts. But as they pay back those debts, their spending becomes lower than their incomes, which then you know someone's spending is just another person's income, which creates the downward spiral mm-hmm. of a debt contraction. And so that's why if you go back to say the 1800s or the early 1900s, you see a lot of these waves of uh, you know debt expansions, and then you know they reach limits, and then you have big debt contractions. You know you have a debt expansion for 20 years and a big debt contraction for 20 or 30 years, and up and down and up and down. And that is very you know that's that's destabilizing, structurally destabilizing, because frankly it creates underlying volatility that makes productive investment. Uh, less attractive, uh, incremental productive investment less attractive. And so that's actually bad for the overall economy. And so what the use of a fiat monetary system does is the ability for the central bank, once you reach those debt limits, to print money, that printing of money is really important because um, it it allows a cushioning of that deflationary force, right? So there's that deflationary force from the debt contraction, you cushion that deflationary force. And as a function of that, you get growth on the backside of the of the cycle, which is like not great. It, this isn't a great boom, but what it is it is enough of an offset of the deflationary force to make sure that you don't have uh, a big economic contraction. If you look at Japan as an example, which has been going through this cycle over the course of the last thirty years, um, a lot of what you know, Japan in the case where it, where the BOJ didn't print any money. Uh, over that period would have been far worse than the fact that they did print some money. And if anything, you actually kind of get a sense of that because you see in the 90s and up until the early 2000s where they didn't print enough money to offset the deflationary forces. And it was actually quite contractionary in a way that was unproductive for the economy. And so now they start printing money to offset that deflationary force. It doesn't mean that Japan has an inflationary spiral. It just means that it isn't as bad, isn't as deflationary as it would be otherwise. The problem with that approach, and I'll I'll, uh, I'll wrap up on this in a minute. The problem with that approach is that if you create too much stimulation, right, then you have a circumstance where you start to get undesirable inflation dynamics. And that basically is what happened in this most recent cycle in particularly in the US, but across the developed world, where uh, it's one thing to print enough money to offset the deflationary cycle. It's a different thing to run, you know, massive government budget deficits funded by trillions of dollars of printing. And that creates, you know, in a time when your productive capacity is is constrained, that creates undesirable nominal spending and inflationary effects. And we're dealing with the consequences of that right now. Mm-hmm. Bob, couldn't the argument be made that if we were on, let's say, more of a, a commodity-backed type currency, and we do get those, you know, quote unquote, destabilizing reversions in the cycle, that those are a little bit more overall tolerable to the market rather than the fiat-based system of stimulating, 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 and then we have an extremely, you know, large destabilizing maybe deflationary event like 2008 for example do do we see ultimately very likely larger more destabilizing effects from that fiat system rather than smaller more frequent ones yeah i think it's a good question and and one that um in some ways is an unanswerable question though um i think the basic idea of you know, what you're trying to do when you're trying to set up a monetary system is create a circumstance that generates the most productive investment over time for the economy. Because if you go back to those three different points, like the thing that drives long-term wealth creation, income creation is productivity and labor force growth. And the, the, the strategic question you want to ask yourself is how do you create the most amount of productive investment that you plausibly can in order to raise incomes over time. And I think one of the challenges of something like a a commodity-based system is that it creates a circumstance where there's a great deal of uncertainty around the pace and the, 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 the timing, the frequency, and the pace of those destabilizing events, 
right? And so you create, if you're thinking about investing in productive capacity, say, you know, it's 1850 and you're building a railroad, you sit there and you say to yourself, well, it's possible that, you know, in the relatively near future, we could have a circumstance where, you know, nominal demand in the economy goes down 50 or 70, you know, 50%, right? I mean, that's not a, that's not a, a totally unusual circumstance in those, mm-hmm. in those periods, not that nominal demand goes down 50%. And so how do you navigate that? That's a very difficult circumstance to navigate. Now, on the other side, you know, if you think about a monetary system, you have a lot more flexibility to respond to those dynamics. But the risk you have is you take it too far and create destabilizing inflationary dynamics. And so there, there's trade-offs between these two points. I think in a lot of ways, the fiat monetary system, while it, um, while it raises that risk of an inflationary dynamic, it gives you the tools to offset deflationary dynamics. And that really the big, you can always cramp down on inflationary dynamics. That's important. That's very, very important, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you might be late, you might not do it enough, all of those things, but you can always tamp down on those because you can always tighten monetary policy to bring that uh, inflation down. Like, look, if the Fed wanted 2% inflation tomorrow or lower than 2% inflation tomorrow, it wouldn't be that hard. They could just tighten rates to 15% and we'd get there in a heartbeat, right? That's not that, it's not that complicated. If they want to get what, you know, if that's what their primary goal is, what it does give you is the flexibility to respond to deflationary events to ensure that you don't get that deflationary downdraft. And that when people are pricing the longer term investments, they can basically price out that whole bottom half of the, the plausible range of, of outcomes. And that creates a lot of stability in the economy structurally, even though at any point in time, yeah, we might have too much debt. We might have a, Crash as a function of that. We might have to print money. Um, you, you know, there's an outside chance of inflation being too hot. But I, I think I'd take that combination of risks relative to the the risks that exist in a in a you know in a commodity backed currency dynamic. Interesting. So, Bob, there's a distinction that you make in that in that writing between recessions and deleveraging events. So, can you give us? let's say the the nuts and bolts of the differences between those i think typically when you think about uh a recession um you could think about there's there's uh there's ebbs and flows or or cycles in incomes right uh typically related to you know your income growth is typically higher in times when um when labor markets are tighter your income growth is typically lower when labor markets are less tight there's also waves of borrowing. Sometimes you're borrowing more because interest rates, you know, are low and opportunities abound. Sometimes you're borrowing less because interest rates are high and opportunities are not available. And those sorts of dynamics, right? I'd say those ebbs and flows in income growth and ebbs and flows in credit growth are sort of normal business cycle activities. When you get to a deleveraging, what you're seeing is an active paying down of debt, right? Paying down of debt in, at an economy-wide level that creates a deflationary spiral downwards. And that is a very different dynamic because what you have there is that you know people aren't adjusting. Essentially, they're not growing more or less in terms of their incomes or their spending. What's actually happening is they've created a big gap between the amount of of spending that they're doing um, relative to their incomes, meaning that they're spending a lot less, a lot less than their incomes, right? Which in order to pay off their debts, and if they're spending a lot less uh, of their incomes to pay off the debts, that's translating to lower incomes from other people. And that's the that's the spiral, and it gets often exacerbated <coughs> by deflation, which incentivizes people to hold cash today on the expectation of higher bar- buying power in the future. That's why that, that sort of zero bound is really important because it flips the incentives, right? The incentives in a normal uh, economy when you have two, let's say 2% inflation is, you know, I know every day that there's cash in my pocket or, you know, cash in my checking account. I know that it is getting worth less every day, right? That you, you know that. 
And whether you explicitly think about it or implicitly think about it, it is constantly a motivation for you to go out and either spend on stuff or more likely spend on financial assets, right? Mm -hmm. Which is beneficial because spending on financial assets means that someone gets the money and means someone takes that and invests it in productive capacity in one shape or form. The risk in a debt deleveraging paired with deflation is that you have people who hoard cash on the expectation of higher value in the future, which reduces the investment in productive capacity today and creates, a, you know, structurally, that is a bad outcome, right? You don't, you want people to invest in productive capacity to get today to raise long-term productivity opportunities uh, and productivity growth. And so that's really, that's sort of the dynamic that's a deleveraging, which is very, very different because that can be a self-reinforcing dynamic that's very mm-hmm. negative in the economy structurally. And much which is very different too, right? And, and could go on for much longer and things like that. That's very different from this, you know, the cyclical waves in income and in credit that you typically see in a business cycle. So after reading several books on the Great Depression, it seems to me like many of the solutions that the government and the central bankers intervened with actually exacerbated the problems that the economy and the markets were facing. Is this a fair judgment? Yeah, I, I think um, you could think about the... Uh, you could think about the, uh, the the depression dynamic as sort of two different periods. One, where the response to financial instability or or financial deterioration was um, we should tighten our belts, right? And I think that that's actually quite a the the reason why you often see uh, you often see folks in central banks facing a debt deleveraging cycle initially respond using that set of tools is because for any one individual, that's the rational choice, right? The rational choice is if you borrowed too much and you're spending too much relative to your income, then what you should do is you should reduce your spending relative to your income and pay back your debts, right? That that actually like from an intuition perspective makes a lot of sense, right? There's there's reasons why when people see the government borrowing too much, they say, what we should really do is implement austerity, right? The problem with, and, and that was like, I mean, it wasn't just, um, just to be clear, like, it's not just, oh, those silly people back in the 20s implemented austerity in response to uh, debt deleveraging, but mm-hmm. Europe did exactly the same thing in the two, in the 2010s, right? So it's not like this is, you know, some... Uh, totally foreign way of approaching it. It's very typical. Uh, it's a very typical way of approaching it. The problem with that is that it fails to take into consideration that you know one person's spending is another person's income. And if you ha- if everyone is tightening their belt at the same time, then you have this core problem that everyone is trying to cut their spending all at the same time, which is cutting everyone's incomes, which is having second and third order effects. And so this is typically what you see: is you see the initial move to austerity thinking that that will solve the problem because of that individual intuition, it creates, it exacerbates the problem, right? And as a function of that, then you get into a worse problem. And when you get into that worse problem, the only solution to that problem, and this is really what's called the second half of the depression period, is the only way to deal with that problem is to to reliquify in one form or another. Right. And so that involves, uh, you know, there's a bunch of different steps to, to deal with that, but things like money printing, which is more in the modern context or back in the, in the, in the thirties context, devaluing money relative to gold, which is really devaluing money relative to stuff, right? The productive, the real productive capacity of all the stuff in the economy allowed people to get out of that negative downward spiral. The key question is, you want to do that, you want to do enough of that to offset the deflationary force, but you don't want, don't want to do so much of it that it creates a circumstance where money is being devalued too much and you start to run into issues with you know, the exchange rate and, and overall inflation. But almost always in these circumstances, what you see uh, is that, that, uh, that, that the central banks do too little for too long to get things going. Like mm-hmm. Japan is a perfect example. It has been, uh, uh, what, 30, 
30, almost 35 years, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of incredible. I remember initially teaching Japan and it had been, well, for 15 years, they've been <laughs> stuck in a deflationary trap. You know, now it's 20 years later. And for 35 years, they've been stuck in a deflationary trap. And that's a good example. Like, like Japan doesn't have an inflation problem right now. It hasn't had an inflation problem in 35 years. Like, if anything, people are doing too little, not enough in dealing with these debt problems. Because there's always that pull for austerity in these dynamics. And people don't recognize the second and third order consequences of that austerity. So, you know, using Japan as a good example here of a government that has gotten to a debt level where they have to start, you know, in some ways making the choice between defending the value of their bonds to the detriment of their currency or vice versa. How how is that working for them? Like, how does that dynamic work? from the outside, from, from an observable point out here? Yeah, I think that the main question when you think about the tools that you can use to reflate your economy is um, the, the, the primary tools are uh, in a fiat system is to be printing money in order to offset the deflationary forces. And the primary limits of that are a point in which you print so much money or you create sufficient stimulation that it starts to um, create concerns about foreign, create concerns for foreign investors who will, who, who have the risk of pulling your, pulling their money out or creates concerns around domestic, domestic investors that their currency will no longer be a storehold of wealth. I think it's a really important when you think about the Japan circumstance, it's very important to recognize Japan, uh, in many ways because they've kept their, they've, they've kept such a deflationary force in their spending. So, Modest, you know, Japan is a structural creditor in the global economy, not a structural uh, borrower. And so, uh, and also just given the nature of the economy, there, there actually isn't, you know, there's not a lot of demand, foreign demand for Japanese assets and things like that. And so Japan is actually in a relatively advantaged situation in terms of running uh, a stimulative policy because the risk that you're going to have a big withdrawal of capital from Japan is relatively modest because there isn't a lot of foreign liabilities and because they own a lot of foreign assets. And similarly, when you have a deflationary dynamic, the real risk that domestic folks start to move money offshore is pretty low because in a lot of ways, what they're doing, like, you know, you what are you going to do if you're in Japan and you had this years and years of deflationary dynamics? where your cash is actually done better over time rather than worse, like the odds that you're going to be like, well, you know what I should really do is go buy dollars. And you're like, well, is that really like, that's not really their, their natural state. And so you have mm-hmm. this circumstance where if anything, if anything, Japan could use a lower currency, more stimulation in a lower currency, right? Which is a totally, I think it's very important. People get confused about Japan. They say, oh, well, Japan's following the U.S. path right now. No, Japan looks nothing like the U.S. Like, Tokyo CPI, you know, X energy and food is zero. It's been zero. It's been zero for 30 years. It's still zero. You know, like this is not, this is not an inflationary dynamic. So if anything, Japan could use more stimulation and a cheaper currency because those sorts of things create competitiveness for the economy for an incredibly depressed economy. And those sorts of things are structurally beneficial kind of get some of that inflation into the economy and create and break that cycle a little bit. And they know that. Like, like as an example, there's a reason why they continue to run the easiest monetary policy in the world. It's because they know that that is the right monetary policy given their circumstances. The real problem in Japan is that the fiscal authorities haven't been sufficiently expansionary to help uh, basically leverage the monetary stimulation that's going on and create enough of a demand driver to create that that domestic, get out of that deflationary cycle in the domestic economy and create that that self-reinforcing upward upward move in mm-hmm. terms of nominal demand. And so uh, so that's the basic idea. It's true that the Ministry of Finance invest, uh, intervened in the currency and actually have been seen to intervene in the currency here and there. But that's more because you don't want that move to be disorderly, right? You, what, what you don't want to have is everyone sells the currency every day and it's a straight line bet and then it just kind of spirals on itself. 
So that's a very reasonable set of approaches to that problem. But it doesn't mean like the yen at 150 is good for Japan. The yen at 160 or 170 or 180 or 200 would be good for Japan. It is the policy that they need. They just need to get there in a way that is not disorderly. And but it's really interesting to, you know, in the in the way that you laid that out, now lay on top of that their demographics and their basic uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're they're basically non-immigration status. They they don't let new people immigrate. And if your population just keeps aging and aging and aging, and your productive capacity because of your demographics keeps going down, that seems like counteractive force to their monetary policy. Right. I mean, it's a huge, they, they, they face those structural, those are structural deflationary forces, which require, because what they, what the, the, the things that you're describing, which is the aging population, uh, is, uh, reduces nominal incomes. And of course, debts are in nominal terms. So the fact that your nominal income is falling is really a big deal. Like the combination of the the deflationary dynamic plus the 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 terrible demographic circumstances means that your nominal incomes on a forward-looking basis are likely to go down. And so, and and you know the the product the the productivity growth is actually not that bad. Like if you look on the you know uh, Japanese per Japanese output per worker per hour is actually, you know, pretty good. All things considered, it's just the problem that the number of workers uh, that that are coming into the economy are contracting a lot, which creates a, a very weak baseline number. And so they've got to figure out a way to increase nominal incomes because they have nominal debts, because they have to get nominal spending up. And there's just a bunch of different ways to do that. They could, you know, Abe, part of Abe's three arrows was to increase uh, labor force participation for women, which is sort of a chronic, um, you know, it's, it's an area in the Japanese economy where, you know, there's obviously a fair amount of productive capacity that could be, uh, could, could, could exist if you brought more women into the workforce. I think that was, you know, that was a good idea. It didn't really play out that well, uh, because it's hard to change various cultural norms associated with that. Mm -hmm. Similarly, um, one of you know, one of the arrows was around immigration and skilled immigration, which also is a good idea. But the trouble with that uh, in a in an economy that you know and a cultural uh, a structural cultural dynamic that has eschewed you know engagement uh, with the outside uh, with the outside world through time and has mm -hmm. been a relatively closed economy when it comes to immigration just means that it's just very challenging to break those norms. Those are the paths to success there, right? In the same way. You know, in many ways, the U.S. economy has, uh, or the Canadian economy, have both been radically benefited by continued immigration growth. Maybe not tactically, because you know it's around COVID and stuff like that. But like, if you look over the last you know twenty or thirty years, like immigration growth has been an important component of continuing to create a reasonably strong level of nominal growth and nominal demand in these economies. And so that really is. You know that's a path uh, when you have an aging population is to is to bring more workers in the workforce in order to improve your overall nominal income growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's just kind of striking me as we're having this conversation, and I'm trying to stay with you on all these things. It's like <laughs> it really comes down to we just need to continue to keep growing and growing and growing and growing and growing, unless we don't, and then what happens? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's that's the basic focus is what are all the different steps that you that um, you that an economy that policymakers can take in order to improve the long term productive capacity of the economy? Because that really that's the thing that matters the most in terms of getting from where we are today to what things will look like 20 or 30 years from now. And so each one of these different factors, there's basically dynamics that drive sort of the structural underlying forces there. And then there's policy response to those forces that can help, you know, can either exacerbate, you know, improve that dynamic, or <laughs> it can exacerbate those dynamics. And so that really, you know, really, when you think about, um, and, and I should say, and how these various economies respond 
with that policy mix is the thing that's going to meaningfully drive uh, whether or not they're successful over time. Like part of the reason, you know, people have talked about, uh, uh, let's say, American exceptionalism over the last 15 years coming out of the financial crisis. Well, is it American exceptionalism or is it the fact that we developed and implemented a set of, of policies, both fiscal and monetary policies, that were a more a better set of fiscal and monetary policies than how other other places in the world responded and why you know Europe was basically behind the curve in responding to their debt problems and the and the risks associated with that or or the US was creating more structural reforms immigration all of those different points is that exceptionalism or is it just more effective policy on both the fiscal and the monetary sides of things to create a better outcome given the hand that you know the developed Western economies were dealt, the U.S. frankly just handled that hand a lot better than did many of the other economies in the world. And that is an important reason why there has been exceptionalism in the U.S. or strength, you know, returns of U.S. stock markets much better than the rest of the world over the course of the last 10 or 15 years was a function of those policies, mm-hmm. not a function of some, you know, grand ethos. It was a function of policy given the dynamics that were faced in order to handle those dynamics effectively. So maybe if we can, Bob, let's drill into, you know, some of the things that we've seen happen. Do you think that the Fed has handled the decisions and the the hands that it has been dealt? Do you think that it has handled things appropriately for, let's say, the last two or three years here? I think the Fed really... uh, the Fed was behind the curve in terms of recognizing the inflationary problems in the economy. Uh, I uh, I empathize with their circumstance, which I think was challenging um, because of all of the unknowns uh, that existed. You know, when those sub- COVID happened, you know, we hadn't seen that in a hundred years. Um, supply chain shocks emerged. It was hard to know when they were going to get resolved. It was also hard to know how, what the second and third order consequences of those things were going to be. And so I'm not saying it was easy. I'm just saying, you know, uh, it was a challenging hand that they didn't quite play as effectively as they needed to. And I think in particular, um, the lesson learned from the last couple of years for the Fed was stay away from managing monetary policy based upon prediction. In that case, the prediction was inflation was going to be transitory. It was not transitory. And I think if you if you sort of see what the lesson from that is, I think a, a number of people take away that the lesson that the Fed has from it is um, is be tight or tighter, you know, bring in the Vol- you know, the spirit of Volcker to make run man- mon- monetary policy because you weren't tight enough in the past. That's not what the lesson is. And I think it's actually a very important, very, very important uh uh, understanding for people when they think about how monetary policy would play out. The lesson for the Fed was don't predict what's going to happen, respond to the data. Mm-hmm. And we see that dynamic tactically, like the last uh, the last uh, the last press conference, what Chairman Powell was saying was, I see inflation falling. I see growth slowing. Therefore, we're going to slow down the pace of our hikes. That's a think. Think about that. Think about that. There's he's also responding. People, he's yeah. just he's looking at the data that's coming in and he's responding to it, mm-hmm. right? And there's all sorts of reasons. You know, if I had to bet what I think inflation is going to do in the future, or I bet if he had to bet what inflation is going to do in the future, is that there will you know we're having we went from transitory inflation to transitory disinflation, and it'll probably go up in the future. And there's reasons why that might happen, particularly tied to you know, the strength of the labor market and the stickiness of inflation. Okay, but he's not making a bet on that, right? Because he got burned by betting, by predicting. And so what he's doing instead is he's saying, I'm seeing the data, I'm responding to the data, and I'll just keep doing (laughs) responses to the data. And I might be behind the curve, but I won't royally screw this up by predicting what's likely to happen. But, you know, considering the fact that we just saw the fastest rate hiking cycle in history, how long do you think that those those actual effects are going to take to be fully felt 
by by the economy, by companies' balance sheets, by the labor market, all of that? I think it's a good question. And one of the things that is really um, challenging in this cycle is that you have a circumstance where um, we have not seen a traditional business cycle really since 2000. And even that was a bit of a a, a bubble pop cycle more than, you know, it was, a, it was a bit of traditional cycle and a bit of a bubble pop. So, you know, what are we talking about? Like late 80s, early 90s is the last time we've had a more traditional business cycle. And I think in that context, it's, it's very uncertain. There's a lot of uncertainty about how all of these dynamics play through. Like the U.S. economy, as an example, restructured substantially following the financial crisis, a move away from floating rate mortgages, uh, a lot of companies basically went from borrowing on, on the short end primarily to extending duration, locking in low interest rates for a long time. And so there are reasons on that side why you might think that the sensitivity of the economy is lower today to interest rates relative to what it was in the past. At the same time, debt levels are higher than they were you know, certainly in 2000 or back in the late 80s and early 90s. And so you may think the economy is more sensitive to the interest rate dynamics. And so you, you see these big cross-cutting forces. And frankly, the big thing is it's unknown. It is anyone who tells you it is certainly this way or is certainly that way is too common. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ambiguity. So what is the right terminal rate to start to ease inflation pressures? It could be three, it could be five, or it could be seven, or it could be 11. Mm-hmm. It's hard to know. And so in a lot of ways, when you're navigating through the cycle, the key thing that I think you have to do is you have to be very hold very true to the data and what you're seeing in the data because it's telling you, it's giving you feedback on here's how much they've tightened, here's how it's flowing through, is it actually doing enough? Is it not? And how is that working? And operating, you got to operate agilely in this environment. You can't, you can't just say, well, there's been a lot of hiking and therefore you know, and the yield curve's inverted. And therefore, you know what? We're going immediately into recession. The reality is lots of people who did that have gotten burned in the in the first part of this year mm-hmm. because they used, frankly, indicators and dynamics that had existed years and years ago to try and assert certainty around the fact that we were on a certain economic path. And the reality is that it's a lot more ambiguous than that. Um, so that's a Probably an unsatisfying answer to <laughs> your question. Well, I think a lot, a lot more uncertainty than there was in the past. I, I think the, the 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 basic premise that we should take from that answer is, as as you said, we have to be nimble and we have to keep learning. Right? We have to keep our minds open to continuing changes within the economy and each of these inputs and how they affect every piece of the economy. Exactly. Exactly. You got to. This is a time to not rest on your laurels, or or just assume that you know how this is working. It's a time to be uh, open, open to the various possibilities. And I think from the perspective of managing money, it's very important to recognize that, um, given this uncertainty in the macro environment, uh, it's not a time to be a hero, to make a hero's bet on one particular macroeconomic outcome relative to another, because it's very plausible that we could get any one of a number of macroeconomic outcomes, whether it's a relatively fast hard landing, whether it's you know higher for longer, whether it's uh, a soft landing, things like that. You know, you could have your odds in terms of the probabilities of each one of those things, but the odds of each one of them is nowhere close to zero, nor is it close to 100%. And so you should be navigating and and placing your bets in a diversified way that reflects the fact that any one of those outcomes could plausibly happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like we've heard from many many of the top, let's say, hedge fund managers or investors, this is one of the most challenging environments that they've ever seen. Right? For sure. I mean, part of what we do uh, at Unlimited is what we're we're using machine learning to infer and understand what positioning hedge fund managers have on. Uh, in close to real time. And I think one of the things that has struck me over and over again through the course of the last basically year plus is how little risk hedge fund managers are running right now relative to history. In fact, 
you know, hedge fund managers in general are running uh, the lowest risk that they've run in 25 years. They're running, hedge fund managers today are running the lowest risk that they've run over the course of the last 25 years, other than say the acute crisis period of 2008 mm. um, or, or, you know, the, the depths of the COVID dynamic. And so I think it's very important to recognize, like these are folks who have access to all the, you know, incredible tools, data, insights, understanding, and how are they positioned? Uncertain. That's how they're positioned, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's the most overwhelming position that they have on right now is uh, is a sense of uncertainty. And if that's the case, like, you know, you have to think about what is your level of confidence relative to the level of confidence that many of these uh, asset managers are able to, to have. And they're, you know, they're, they're making sure not to play for swing for the fences. They're, they're playing conservative through this dynamic. And so I think it's a good lesson that sometimes you, you don't know and you have to be nimble and you have to be responsive and you have to recognize that not knowing when you're running money and play conservatively through a challenging environment. Because the goal here is not to make the trade of the century. The goal here is to continue to live to fight another day. To not get killed, yeah. Right, right. So, you know, when we take a step back and we analyze things from a, a longer term view and maybe this more of a defensive posture that that a lot of these these big investment firms have taken... Do you think that gold would be an asset that you would hold only in certain economic scenarios? Well, I think gold is uh, is a great diversifying asset that's widely underheld. And the reason why that is, is that gold is particularly valuable in, uh, in protecting against tailed environments, whether it's uh, elevated inflation um, or uh, inflation that is, uh, or deflation, either one of those circumstances is a, is a good, that's really what gold's benefit is, is, is a hedge against those tailed environments. Mm-hmm. And often people for gold in particular will look at the daily returns and they'll say, well, it kind of looks like interest rates, the shifts in interest rates or the dollar, which is absolutely true. And the reason why that is, is gold is non-interest bearing money. And so if you're looking at gold priced in interest bearing money, when that interest-bearing money you know, earns more interest, gold looks like a worse asset tactically. And so if you look at any you know, rolling seven-day period or something like that, like gold looks like interest rates, absolutely. The issue is gold can meaningfully diverge from, that, from interest rate returns, right? bond returns over longer periods of time when the pricing of the tail risks in the economy start to become more elevated. And that's exactly what we saw over the course of the last, uh, the last year is you know, gold's rolling daily correlation to interest rates basically is unchanged. It's the same it's been for a long time. But gold in 2022 was flat. And as an example, you know, longer term real, you know, longer term tips or, or you know, real interest rates. Uh, you know, generated, you know, declined about 20%, right? So that's a, that's a huge, if you think about that, right? What should have happened is gold should have fallen 20%, right? Reflecting the higher real interest rates in dollars that existed at the end of the year relative to the beginning of the year, but instead it was flat. And what does that mean? That means there's a big pricing of tail risk. I think a reasonable, a very plausible pricing of tail risk that got priced into the gold market and is reflective of the fact that um, you know gold as a as a tail risk asset is is looks better today than it did uh you know 12 or 24 months ago. Mm-hmm. Excellent Bob well I think I think maybe we should leave it there for today there's a million different other subjects we could get into and I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your explanation of all these different things with us. You know, there's. I look forward to the next time we chat because you do such a good job of of explaining these things. Is there anything that you want to mention before we wrap up that maybe we didn't touch on? No, no. I thank you so much for having me. If um, if people are interested in uh, in following my uh, ongoing thoughts, you know, probably the the best thing to do is to check out uh, my Twitter. I'm pretty 
pretty mm -hmm. active there uh, at Bobby Unlimited. Um, and if you're interested in what we're doing at uh, Unlimited more generally around uh, replicating hedge fund uh, industry returns, definitely check out uh, our website at uh, unlimitedfunds.com. Absolutely. And we'll make sure we put those in the show notes, both of those links, and also the link to the articles that we kind of talked about. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Bob. I really enjoyed it too. We'll talk again. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.